All right. Well, if you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 20, and we'll be looking at verses 4 through 6 this morning. And as I was thinking about this message, I'm like, what really sums up what this message is saying, what the second commandment is saying? And so I came up with the title, Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing. Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing. All right, so last week we were blessed with a message from Pastor Chad on the first of the Ten Commandments, found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, which says, You shall have no other gods before me. The first commandment teaches us who we are to worship. The who, as we learned last week, is the God of the Bible. God as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. We learned last week that God is a jealous God. Jealous in the sense that he will not allow anything or anyone to compete for the number one spot in our hearts. As we continue our journey through the Ten Commandments, today we will look at the second commandment, which teaches us how to approach and properly worship God. Many times it's easier to understand big ideas when we can break them down into their simplest form. With that in mind, I like the way that Vody Bauckham describes the first and second commandments. He said the first one is basically, uh, I'm God, you don't get another one. And the second one is, don't even make anything that looks like me. I thought that was a very simplified way of talking about the first and second commandment. So let us look at our text today. Verse, I'm going to start at verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that we have the text of scripture to be able to go to, Father, to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, we invite you this morning, Father, to speak to us, Lord. Use me, Father, an imperfect, broken vessel, Lord, this morning to speak the truth of your word to your people, Lord God. Would you take my meager preparation, um, everything that I've put into this, Father, and use it for your glory this morning. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes this morning to the idols that may exist in our hearts, in our lives, Lord God. Help us, Father, to not only identify those, but to cast those down, Father, to, to destroy those idols that are taking up residence where only you should reside, Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So during the height of the Pepsi versus Coca-Cola wars, Coca-Cola released a TV commercial in 1971, and it's often referred to as the Hilltop. Some of you may be old enough to remember this commercial. Um, The commercial basically consisted of a large group of multicultural young people standing on the grass on a beautiful day, singing that they would like to buy the world a Coke. The lines from that song that are most remembered by people are, what the world wants today is the real thing. Of course, the messaging in that commercial had a powerful impact on the people who were living 
at a time when the country was still dealing with overt racial issues and things of that sort. Coca-Cola managed to put the picture in the minds of the consumers that drinking Coke meant you were a champion for racial harmony and peace. And don't forget, this is during the time of the hippies. This is the 70s. So it was all about peace and love, right? Um, It was also a reminder to the consumer that because cola was first, that makes Coke the real thing. Pepsi came after Coke, in case some of you didn't know that. So Coke is the real deal because they came first. At least that's what they wanted to let us know. And we won't get into the fact that original Coca-Cola actually had cocaine in it, but maybe that's why they thought it was the real thing. But I ain't going to go there. I'm going to leave that alone. (laughs) All right. A few years before Coca-Cola released that song and commercial, there was another popular song with a similar title that some of us older folks may be familiar with. And that song was called Ain't Nothing Like the Real Thing. And it goes, ain't nothing like the real thing, baby. Ain't nothing like the real thing. Oh, oh. All right. I ain't going to do all of that. Anyway, in the first verse of the song, Tammy Terrell sings these lyrics. She says, I've got your picture hanging on the wall, but it can't see or come to me when I call your name. I realize it's just a picture in a frame. Tony Evans said once that idolatry is like going on a date with a picture instead of the person. He went on to say that idolatry is creating a picture, and no matter how beautiful the picture is, once you go out on a date with the picture, the person in the picture is probably not going to join you for dinner in the future. Because if you're satisfied with just going out on a date with the image of me, then why should I waste my time going on a real date with you? I'm sure Marvin and Tammy didn't have the second commandment in mind when they wrote the lyrics to that song. However, truer words have never been spoken. That is essentially what idols are, lifeless images of the real thing. Look at what the psalmist says about idols in Psalms 115 verses 4 through 8 when speaking about the practices of the heathen nations. Verse 4, it says, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Now, allow me to condense these ideas into a working definition of idolatry for us this morning. An idol is anything we depend on to receive blessings, assistance, or guidance instead of wholeheartedly relying on the true and living God of the Bible. I'm going to say that again. An idol is anything we depend on to receive blessings, assistance, or guidance instead of wholeheartedly relying on the true and living God of the Bible. As we explore the second of the Ten Commandments, my prayer is that by the conclusion of our time together, you will leave with four key takeaways. Firstly, an enhanced capability to recognize your own idols. Secondly, a deeper comprehension of why God despises or hates idols. 
Thirdly, the consequences of idol worship. And lastly, we'll look at the only known cure for an idolatrous heart. So let's look back at our scripture again. Verse 4 says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. At first glance, you would, you would think that this verse is a prohibition against making any type of representation of God, such as a painting of Jesus or a picture or a dove, of a dove to represent the Holy Spirit or even a cross on a stained glass window. But looking at the verse in context, notice that the first half of verse 5 says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. The emphasis here is not on the piece of artwork itself, but its purpose. Any man-made thing that is created with the intention of being an object of worship is an idol and is to be rejected. However, God is not against art. Look with me at Exodus chapter 25, verse 18. Exodus 25, verse 18 says, And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. In Exodus chapter 26, verse 31 says, And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. Whoa, 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 wait wait a minute. You mean to tell me God says in the second commandment that we are not to make any likeness of anything that is in heaven? But later he commands Israel to make images of cherubim or angels for the ark? Is God contradicting himself? Of course not. These verses only reinforce what I said earlier. God is not condemning us for expressing ourselves through art. What he is condemning is anything created with the intention of being used as an object of worship in place of worshiping him or as a means to worship him. Let me explain what I mean when I say a means or alternative way to worship him. Many Christians and non-Christians alike like to wear crosses around their neck as jewelry. There's, of course, nothing inherently wrong with wearing a cross, but it could be. Many times people who lack biblical understanding or as a result of false teachings, like false teachings that come out of the Roman Catholicism, Like, they skip the second commandment and they split another commandment to make ten. They don't use the second one because they want to make room for their indulgences for you to get this thing that's been prayed over by the priest and you can take this and be blessed, right? But no, we we can't. Um, So as a result of false teaching, uh, we that person might believe that God's power somehow resides in that piece of metal or wood that's hanging from their necks. At this point, the cross has moved from a piece of jewelry to idolatry. You've most likely seen a a movie at some point where someone's in a scary situation and they, they grab the cross as if all the power of God to stop evil is inside of this piece of wood. And in most cases, the evil forces end up whooping everybody in the room. Why? Because the object or idol has no power of its own. This is where Hollywood actually got something right for a change. 
But outside of the movies and inside of our Bibles, we have an even greater example of this in the story of the seven sons of Sceva found in Acts chapter 19, verse 11 to 16. Let's read that account. Acts chapter 19, starting at verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. Wow. Again, we see that God is not opposed to using objects because we see here that through Paul, God was using handkerchiefs and aprons to heal the sick. But what God did oppose were these men attempting to use his name like some type of magic spell without having a relationship with him. You see, the power lies in the relationship, not the ritual. You, you, missed, you missed your shouting moment. You'll get that on the way home. The power lies in the relationship, not the ritual. We haven't even gotten out of verse 4, and there's still plenty left here to digest. God's word is truly inexhaustible. Now let's look at an important principle that God has established throughout the Bible. Look with me at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12. Moses is writing about Israel's experience at Mount Sinai. Verse 12 says, Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sounds of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. God is spirit, right? Right. All through the Bible, we see that the worship of God is word-based, not image-based. Here's the way we might normally say this. We walk by faith and not by right. The moment we can see the object of our worship, we are no longer walking by faith, but by sight. In other words, sight cancels faith. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, according to Hebrews 11.1. Now, let's look at what Jesus has to say about this idea in John chapter 4, verse 24. In John chapter 4, verse 24, Jesus says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You see, when images and material objects are utilized as the focal point or aids in worship, it negates the true nature of God, which is spirit, and disregards the authentic manner in which we ought to worship him, which is in spirit and truth. This is where us humans get in trouble. We are visual creatures. God created us and wired us with the ability to experience pleasure through our eyes. So the natural tendency of our fallen nature is to want to make a God that we can control. Paul warns against this in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, and we'll see in these verses the consequences or penalty for this sort of behavior as well. So let's look at Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 22. 
It says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. This is where idolatry ultimately leads us. When idols are chosen above God, God will eventually give you over to the idol you're chasing. That's a terrifying thought, isn't it? The Bible teaches us that we actually become like the idols we chase. Look again at Psalm 115, verse 8. It says, those who make them, idols that is, become like them. Mm. So do all who trust in them. If your idol is wealth or material possessions, you will eventually find yourself making every decision in your life based on how much you can make or how much it will cost. In the end, you will become cold, callous, and lifeless, just like the toys and the pieces of paper you are consumed by. I had this idol peek its head around the corner just the other day for me as I was getting my hair cut. Uh, My brother started telling me about one of our brothers that um, that's doing well in the world. He's, he's, he's coming up and he's, he's making good money and he's got some things going on for him. So I'm listening to him. He's like, yeah, he's got seats at the Buck Stadium right, at, right in the front row, right behind the players. I'm like, I'm smiling, but inside I'm like, man, I wish I had seats at the Bucks game right behind the players, right? He's like, did you, did you see his new car? He's got, a, he's got a new Tesla. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'd like a new Tesla. He's like, did you see his truck? Like, no, he's got a new Lincoln truck too. I'm like, oh my goodness. So, so what, what happens in my mind is my mind instantly starts to go working through ways that I can increase my income in order to experience this type of leisure in my own life. Uh, so my mind really started running and racing down that path. So I, I was smiling on the outside, but honestly, on the inside, I was idolizing the idea of living a life of leisure. Of course, there's nothing wrong with having and enjoying things. The problem comes when those things have us. The moment you start to look at the money as your source of blessing instead of God who gave you the ability to make it, the money or possessions have become your idol. If your idol is sex, let's look at Colossians 3.5. It says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. If sex has become your idol, you'll start to believe that sex is something you can't live without. And eventually you'll seek illegitimate ways to satisfy your desires. That's why pornography and over-sexualized images are rampant in our world. You can't turn on the TV without being bombarded with it. Like we read a while ago in Romans chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, when you exchange worship of the true and living God for the worship of the bodies he created, He will eventually allow you to be destroyed by the thing your heart desires. Mm. If your idol is pleasure, you'll soon experience what King Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 2.1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. King Solomon literally had all 
you could ever have as it pertains to things of the world. He's the one man in history whose bank account was pretty much unlimited. So if there was anything that could be experienced, any pleasure, anything you could buy, any place you could go, anything you could do, King Solomon had experienced it in abundance. And after all his flesh pleasing, he says, behold, this also was vanity, meaning whatever feeling you are chasing is worthless in the end because only God can provide true pleasure. That's why drug companies stay in business, right? That's why drug dealers can be drug dealers, because if you could buy the drug one time and be good, you'd be done, right? But no, you keep coming back because it never satisfies completely. It's just a temporary fix. It's just a temporary way to escape and and forget about all these problems that you got going on and all of that, but you'll be back, and you'll be back again, and you'll be back again, right? If your idol is happiness, you'll find that every situation that disrupts your happy mood will cause your emotions to crash faster than Roman on his motorcycle. (laughs) And I'll be honest with you, I think that as I was doing this, I identified this as one of the things in my own life that I have to watch out for. I found that I have the tendency to guard my happiness And when the troubles of life invade my happy bubble, I can find myself being irritable and entitled as if I deserve to be happy at all times. Which is really stupid because Jesus says in Matthew 10, 38, and he who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. If the source of our happiness comes from anyone or anything besides God, we have made an idol out of that. We have made an idol out of our happiness. If your idol is food, all right, if I stepped on your toe, just say ouch. Because this has been one of mine. I can say ouch. If your idol is food, you may find yourself living to eat instead of eating to live. This is yet another idol that I personally have to guard against. The Bible says in Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. Now, this verse is, of course, talking about much more than food. However, it still applies. I don't think I really even need to exhaustively list all of the problems that come from idolizing food, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, and a host of complications that accompany this handful of diseases. The scriptures are certainly true, and we have evidence of their truthfulness all around us. If your idol is people, again, looking at Romans chapter 22 and 23, I mean, one chapter, verses 22 and 23, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Here's how you know that a person has become your idol. When you see that person as your primary source of blessing. When you see a person as your primary source of blessing, you've made them an idol. Meaning your heart posture is, I can't live without him. I can't live without her. You've made an idol. Newsflash, I know the devil's convinced you that your life was over because that man, that woman, that friend, that boss, or whoever has thrown you away. But the truth is they are not or should not be as important to you as they are. The only one we cannot live without is Jesus. Accept no substitutes, because ain't nothing like the real thing. 
Maybe your idol is you. It could be that you are so full of yourself that you have unknowingly began to function as the God of your own life. You know what this looks like. It looks like a person who listens to no one and lives life by their own rules. It's the mantra of Satan himself. Do as thou wilt. Whatever seems right in your own eyes is what you will do, regardless of how it affects or impacts the lives of others. This doesn't necessarily mean that this person is an atheist or non-believer. It simply means that they have no fear of God. One who lives without fear of God believes that they are the masters of their own destiny. This list is not in any way meant to be exhaustive, but instead it's a small sample of the idols that are common to most of us. Now, if you made it through that handful of idols and you're still like, "Eh, he didn't touch on mine, he didn't touch my idol. Just hold on one second. Let me read this illustration for you. All right. This illustration is called Word Camouflage. It says, the footnote in the NIV at 2 Kings chapter 18, verse 4, is most interesting. When Hezekiah found the children of Israel worshiping the brazen serpent made by Moses in the wilderness, he destroyed it. Hezekiah called the serpent Nehushtun. The footnote explains the meaning of the word as a serpent made of brass. We wonder how such an idol could have existed for so long. So long. It would seem that it would have been destroyed in one of the reformation movements of one of the judges or kings. In my opinion, it lasted so long because it apparently was not recognized as an idol. Perhaps the children of Israel justified the worship by not calling it an idol. Hezekiah, however, came and called it what it really was, a brass image of a snake. How often we justify sin by either ignoring it or calling it a different name. Some call adultery a meaningful relationship. We excuse covetousness by calling it prudence or economy. A life of sensual pleasure is living with gusto. In answer to a critic, Abraham Lincoln asked, how many legs does a cow have? Four was the reply. If you call her tail a leg, how many does she have? Five was the answer. No, Lincoln said, just calling a tail a leg does not make it a leg. So you can call your sin anything you want to, but it's still sin. You can call your idol any name you want to, but it's still an idol. It doesn't matter. You can't escape this truth. Have we made a similar mistake? Do we think that sin is not sin just because we do not call it by the right name? So if I fail to call out your particular idol this morning by name, whether it be ancestor worship or stones and crystals or tarot cards or horoscopes or any other unauthorized means you are depending on and trusting in as your source of blessing or means to approach God, I want you to know that your specific brand of idolatry is also included in the second commandment. Amen. So now let us finish out our text as we look at verse five again. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Because Chad covered the beginning half of this verse so well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But it says, for the Lord, your God, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. I love the way this commentator explains this portion of Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. He says, God's jealousy is love in action. 
He refuses to share the human heart with any rival. Not because he is selfish and wants us all for himself, but because he knows that upon that loyalty to him depends your very moral life. God is not jealous of us. He is jealous for us. That's a mic drop. That's a mic drop. He says, because it's, it's not that God needs you to be his friend, so he's jealous that you're chasing after somebody or something else. No, God, by definition, needs nothing and no one. Instead, it's because God loves us so much that he hates to see sin destroy us. God knows that anything that we chase outside of him leads to death. Now let's look at the second half of this verse, which can sometimes be a cause for disagreement as to what's being communicated here. It says, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Now, some people take this to mean that God punishes people directly for the sins of their ancestors. That is not what this verse is saying. The key words in this verse are those who hate me. Remember what the next verse says. Verse 6 says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. In other words, the children have a choice. If the descendants love God, they won't have the iniquity of the fathers visited on them. One commentator had this to say in reference to this idea of what some might call generational curses. Like this is kind of an area where you can get to thinking about what people call generational curses. He says, This necessarily implies if the children walk in the steps of their fathers. For no man can be condemned by divine justice for a crime of which he was never guilty. Yes, it's true that if your family tree is plagued with certain sins, you may have a higher likelihood of falling into those same patterns of sin. If you had an abusive parent, you may have a natural tendency to repeat those patterns of abuse. However, if you have accepted Jesus Christ and have been transformed by the power of his spirit, you are a new creation in Christ. And you have been freed from the bondage of your family's sins or generational curses. You now have a choice. The Bible doesn't promise that making the right choice won't be a fight. You know it will be. But you have the power of God now living inside of you, enabling you to break free from any form of bondage or idolatry. But you still have to choose. What good is a million dollars in the bank if you don't know how to make a withdrawal? In closing out the text, the focus of verse 5 and 6 is judgment for idolatry on a national scale. When nations abandon or disregard the Lord, they will be judged. And that judgment will have lasting effects for many generations. In closing, remember I said in the beginning that I would share with you the only known cure for an idolatrous heart. Here it is. You ready? The cure for an idolatrous heart is, come back next week and I'll be happy to wrap this up and tell you all about the cure for an I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Oh, that's how TV does you, right? Leave you on a cliffhanger. Anyway, uh, the cure for an idolatrous heart is the first commandment. Again, remember when we started, I said 
The second commandment teaches us how to approach God and properly worship God. While the first commandment demands that we give our wholehearted devotion and worship to God and God alone. The way we do this is by surrendering our life, our wants, our needs, our hopes, our dreams, and everything inside of us to Jesus. God created us with the ability to take in beauty with our eyes. We are visual creatures. I said earlier that faith is believing without seeing. So when we create an idol, whether it be in our hearts or made of stone or metal or wood, we gain something worthless, the idol, and lose someone priceless. In other words, you can have either the true and living God of the Bible or you can have your idol. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money, but this encompasses much more than just money. Highland Crest, let us choose today who we will serve. I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Because ain't nothing like the real thing, baby.